Good morning. This morning's reading is from Hebrews 13, starting at verse 7, which can be found on page 1009 of the Church Bibles. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by fools, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honourably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Thank you, James, for reading for us. Thank you, musicians, too, for leading us through. Now, a couple of things that are going to help us as we work our way through. One is just at the back of the service sheet, there's an an order, just the, um, the kind of outline of the sermon. That might help you if you'd like to make notes. Um, But the most important and most helpful thing would be just to have the Bible open in front of you so that you can see what um, verses we're looking at as we 
um, get to them. Let me pray, though, as we come uh, to this uh, great passage. Oh God, our Father, you have taught us that your word comes through your Holy Spirit, that though it was written by human authors, your spirit has inspired your word, that your voice is heard as it is read and as it is faithfully taught. You promised us too, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit is given to each of us as we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would work among us this morning, that we would understand what your word says, but also that you would change our hearts and therefore our lives in obedience to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So we've made it to the end. Uh, It's taken us 10 months, 29 sermons, this is the 29th, 13 chapters and 303 verses. We've made it to the end of the book of Hebrews. By the way, I didn't count the verses, I just Googled it, and that's what it told me. Well done, you've made it all the way through. You've completed uh, this wonderful book. And as we've gone through the book, we've encountered many great and wonderful things as we've been called to consider Jesus. We began by hearing all the way back in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the better speaker that he is the final word to us from God the Father, that he's better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses. And then we saw that Jesus is a better high priest, and that was the big, the big theme of the book, wasn't it? The great central theme, that he is permanently seated in the heavenly throne room, that he ever lives and pleads for us, that he's praying for us, he's listening to our prayers for grace and mercy, that he sympathises with us, And that he grants us help in time of need. And we've learned that as our high priest, he has offered a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself, a sacrifice once for all, that really pays for sins, that brings the promises of a better covenant to us, forgiveness, cleansing of our consciences, enabling us to draw near to a holy God. Amazing things. And then latterly, as we've come towards the end of the book, we've learned that Jesus is our forerunner, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that he led the way for us, that he endured the cross for our salvation, and that he has brought us to the unshakable kingdom, to the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem. We've learned many other wonderful things as we've considered Jesus in this great book of Hebrews. But why? Why have we been taught all this about Jesus? Answer, that we might make it to the end. So the Hebrews, they've been wavering in their faith. There's been pressure from without and temptation from within. And it's caused them to wonder if following Jesus is worth it. It'd be far easier for them to return to their Judaism to slip back into their old way of life. They'd be accepted in society again. Pressure would ease. They'd live a more comfortable life. And they might be able to indulge themselves a little in their sinful desires. They're on the cusp of chucking in the towel. And so our author writes his letter. He's shown us the wonder of Jesus and the reward that awaits the faithful. And he's shown us the devastating consequences of rejecting, of abandoning Jesus. 
And he's done that so that they and we might be a people of enduring faith. Enduring faith. Trusting Jesus, living for him through all the circumstances of life until the end of life. We get the author's reason for writing in chapter 13, verse 22. It's just on the second page of um, our reading, page 1010. Verse 22, he tells us his reason. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Now, we might laugh at the word briefly there, given how long uh, the letter is. But look at what he calls his letter. He says, it is a word of exhortation. Exhortation is a bit like encouragement, but it's kind of stronger than encouragement. It's an urging, a pleading. Keep sticking with Jesus to the end. That's what the whole letter's about, and that's therefore what we can expect this last chapter to be about too. It's the same goal that you'll make it to the end. He's exhorting us to get there. And so we have things that are critical for us that we need to keep going in the Christian life. That's what we're going to see. So number one, verses 7 and 8 and verse 17 to 19. Follow and submit to your faithful leaders. Now leadership has come under great scrutiny in recent years, uh, in government, in the workplace, and in the church. And as a result, mistrust of leaders seems to be at a high. And who can blame us, given the abuses and the scandals that we've seen, both in the wider culture and, sadly, in the church. Bad leadership is rightly being exposed And bad leaders are being held accountable. Though this exposure certainly saddens us, we should recognise that it is also good, for Jesus is purifying his church. We should be thankful for every injustice that's brought to light and dealt with. But it's worth us recognising too that, that because this exposure of bad leadership is very much in our hearts and minds in this present moment, and and particularly because some of us have been directly affected um, in our histories by such things, it's worth recognising that we might struggle to hear, to listen well to the teaching of Hebrews chapter 13. See, in rightly rejecting abusive and bad leadership, we may be tempted to view all leadership with suspicion and therefore reject the faithful and godly leaders that God has placed over his church. So the author of this letter, he's wanting to exhort his church to endure to the end, and he instructs them here to follow and to submit to the leadership of their church. Now you might have noticed that verses 7 to 19, they're kind of bracketed by comments on leadership. That's a really common device used by Bible Writers, it shows us that this is what this section is uh, all about. So let's look at those brackets and verse 7, the opening bracket first of all. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith, uh, sorry, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Now, there's an indication here that perhaps the leaders that he's speaking of in this verse are the founders of the church and that they're no longer around, probably that they've died. It's all past tense, they're to be remembered. But what is it that you're to remember about them? Well, their Bible teaching, they spoke the word of God to you. They faithfully taught you the truth, so hold firm to their message. But also remember that they were not hypocrites, saying one thing and doing another. No, their lives were displays to you of what it meant to live by faith. Therefore they were worthy of copying. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. These were people who were worth following. They led lives of faithfulness, trusting Jesus through many trials, faithfully holding to and teaching the word of God. So follow them, copy them, imitate them. Use them as your example of what it means to live a life of faith. And this really bites because what was the likely outcome of their way of life? Martyrdom. That they were faithful unto death. Our church needs godly leaders, those who teach the word of God faithfully, those who lead faithful lives. We all need their example if we are to endure to the end. Let me tell you about three men, Paul, Terry and Nigel. Now these are three men who have done this for me. Now there are others too, but let me just mention them. They're all leaders in the church where I was brought up. They're all faithful teachers of God's word. I can remember sermons that they gave. I can remember explanations of the gospel. I remember their preaching and their small group leading. I remember particularly one-to-one Bible studies that they each did with me. Among other things, Paul showed me how to care for others. He really loved people and spent time with them and read the Bible with them. And particularly with me, he showed me how to bring God's word to bear on my life. He was gently encouraging me and gently challenging me uh, where I needed to repent and turn to godliness. That's Paul. Terry, Terry modelled for me something slightly different, all those things too, but particularly a heart and a passion for the lost. He kept saying to me, look, no one's beyond the Lord's reach. And he lived like that. He spoke to people who others wouldn't speak to. Everybody needed to hear about Jesus. And Nigel, Nigel showed me how to die in faith. In the last months of his life, he was suffering terrible discomfort and pain, but he never stopped holding on to his saviour. Now, all those men fit the description of verse 7. None of them were perfect. There were aspects and sins in their lives, things that you shouldn't imitate, of course. But their teaching was faithful, And their lives of faithfulness were worth imitating. And I remember them. And I still need to remember them and leaders like that. And so do you and so does every Christian. Of course, those of us who have the privilege of being leaders in Jesus' church, well, we need to become leaders whose faith is worth following. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life 
and imitate their faith. Before we move on, what do we make of the next verse? Verse 8 is a bit odd. Don't you think it sticks out a little bit in this reading? I mean, it's a wonderful truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's a wonderful truth. But what's it doing here? Why has it fallen here just after this verse about leaders? Well, I think it's for this reason. What was the message of the leaders who spoke the word of God to you? Jesus. It was all about Jesus, who he is, what he taught, and of course, what he has done for us at the cross. And what kind of life did these leaders model for you? Well, they modeled the life of faith in Jesus. They followed him, even though that may have led them to death for his sake. See, the Jesus that they taught and trusted in yesterday is the same Jesus today and will be the same Jesus tomorrow. In other words, you you don't follow godly leaders because of them. You follow them because of the Jesus that they taught and follow. Imitate leaders as they imitate Christ, who never changes. That's what he's saying. Follow faithful leaders. Now That's the opening bracket. Let's turn... Then to the closing one, it's just on the next page, verse 17. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now here, the author is not talking about the leaders they had before, but their present church leaders. And this one, we might, we might well find slightly harder to swallow. We recoil at the idea of obedience and submission to other people. But remember what we saw before, the kind of leaders that our author commends to us. It's the same here. These are faithful Bible teachers and faithful Jesus followers that we're to obey and submit to. There's more information here, though, or perhaps more motivation. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Keeping watch over your souls. This is shepherding language, isn't it? Leaders of the church keep watch over the souls of the members as as a shepherd watches over the lives of his sheep. They guard them, they protect them from danger without, from wolves, and from danger within, that sort of inner sheep-like tendency to wander off from the flock and fall off a cliff. Church leaders are to make sure they do their best to ensure that, that no sheep is lost, to fight off the danger of wolfish false teachers, to go after the strays, to bring them back before they end up in big trouble. It's a big responsibility, do you notice that? They'll give an account, an account to the great shepherd, to the Lord Jesus, for the particular sheep under their care. 
But we need to notice that this verse is not primarily directed to the leaders. It teaches us stuff about what leaders should do, but who's it pointed to? It's pointed to all of us, to the church. The instruction is to the church to obey and submit to faithful leaders. And look at the final motivation for that. Let them do this, that is, let them keep watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You can either cause joy or groaning in the heart of your leadership. Making a faithful leader groan with pain will be no good for you at all. And again, think of the context of the Hebrews. They're leading a church. Leading a church is a weighty responsibility, serious accountability before God, but it's especially difficult in a context where there's persecution, where leading a church may end up in your imprisonment or even execution. Do you really want to make it harder, our author says? This is no call to blind obedience to abusive or self-serving pastors. This is a call to faithful submission to faithful leaders. Why? So that the whole church may faithfully endure together as they follow Jesus in a hostile world. Well, that's the brackets which say this, in order to faithfully endure to the end, follow and submit to your faithful leaders. Let's return then to verse 9, see what's inside the brackets, the heart of our passage. Verse 9 to 16, feed on grace and joyfully bear the reproach of Christ. Verse 9. Well, verse 9 reveals that the Hebrews were indeed in danger of straying straying from the faithful teaching of the gospel of Jesus that they'd received from their leaders. And the author here, he highlights one particular teaching, that of being devoted to foods. Let me read, let me start reading at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, this isn't talking about some kind of ancient diet plan, nor is it talking about an excessive number of delivery orders. This is speaking about the Jewish food laws and and the festivals. It's the teaching that says that, well, there's something needed to be kind of added to your faith in Jesus in order to make sure that you're secure in your salvation. So it goes like this. Keep the food laws and the festivals in order to kind of top up your faith, to make certain that you're saved. Now, he calls it a diverse and strange teaching, not because it's weird, but because it's foreign to the gospel of grace that they've been taught. He makes that really clear by his counterpoint, that that in our hearts we're to feed on grace instead. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. It's grace that keeps us secure in our salvation. It's not eat an apple a day to keep the doctor away. It's eat grace each day to keep from falling away. 
And I know that's pretty cheesy, but it's true. Pure grace is what saved you. It is by pure grace that God keeps you in that salvation, and it is pure grace that will keep you going to the end. Now, what is it, this grace? What is he referring to? Well, he takes the opportunity next to remind us of several things that he's already taught us in the letter in verses 10 to 14. Verse 10 to 14, I think, are pretty tricky to get our heads around. Let me read them again, and then we'll make a few comments. So verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So if we think back through the letter, through the letter of Hebrews, Hebrews has consistently taught us that the old covenant, the places, the people, and the rituals of the Old Covenant, they were just shadows of the true heavenly reality. They all pointed to that reality. So the sacrifices, the priesthoods, the tabernacle, they were all fulfilled in Jesus, and the real benefits have come to us through him. And this is along the same lines. In verse 10, he's referring to the fact that normally, in the normal process of things, the Old Testament priests, the covenant priests, they had access to eat the meat from the sacrifices. And they were allowed to do that. The sacrifices were made on the altar, and they could cook the food and eat it afterwards. It was a great privilege that was granted to those who were closest to God. But in the Jewish system, there was one sacrifice a year from which the priests could not eat. And that was the most important one. It was the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement. The reason they couldn't eat from that sacrifice was when the animal was killed, though they gathered the the blood, and the blood was carried into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, to make access to God uh, possible. But what remained of the body of the animal, it wasn't cooked like normal and eaten like normal, The whole thing was carried outside the camp and it was burned completely so that there was nothing left. The priests had no right to eat from that altar. So here's his point. As Christians, we can eat from the atoning sacrifice. The better atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus shed blood and crucifixion Outside the gate of Jerusalem means complete atonement for sins, full forgiveness, so that we could be made clean permanently. By pure grace, we can eat from the sacrifice that the most privileged priests could not. Not eat with our mouths, we can now feed on him in our hearts through faith. Confident that we truly are forgiven permanently forgiven, permanently made clean, knowing that we're not just close to God, but that God now lives in our hearts through his spirit. 
You see, as we consider the great privilege that the cross has brought us, we're strengthened by grace. Don't count on any religious practice like the eating of foods to help you feel secure in your salvation. No, eat grace instead, says our author. Each day, by faith, keep taking in and reflecting on and rejoicing in the atoning work of the cross. That grace will strengthen us to faithfully endure to the end. Now, as he's considered this day of atonement sacrifice and what happens uh, to um, the body of uh, the sacrifice, his mind, it seems, turns to another aspect of it. And so in considering the cross, there's one more thing that he needs to talk about, and that's in verses 13 and 14. And that is that the treatment of Jesus to be sacrificed outside the camp is the same treatment we can also expect To identify with Jesus is to gain the privileges of grace from him, but it's also to receive the treatment he received. And the Hebrews knew this. They'd already experienced this. The leaders who had come before them in particular, they certainly had experienced this. But our author now calls them to follow their example. Stick with Jesus. You'll get rejection and reproach from the world, but you'll also gain grace and forgiveness, and a permanent place in a heavenly city. Practically, what does it mean to identify with Jesus outside the camp? Well, the answer, I think, is in verses 15 and 16, which, again, seem a little odd to us at first. It's exactly what they're doing there, but let me try and explain what I think is happening. Verses 15 and 16. Through him, that's through the rejected Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now this, this shows us uh, this, I think. That to go to Jesus outside the camp is not merely to identify with Jesus but also with Jesus' people. So if you think about it, why are the Hebrews getting grief from others? Uh, Is it because of their private faith, what they uh, believe in their hearts? Well, no, it's not actually that that's getting them grief. No one's going to criticise you for that. It's for their public faith that they bear reproach. It's the fact that they don't go to synagogue anymore, but come to worship with Christians each week to praise Jesus. It's because they're active in evangelism. They're acknowledging his name before the world. That's what gets them grief. And it's because they share what they have with Christian brothers and sisters. They're not giving to their former allegiances. And of course, as we've seen, it's because they identify with these Christian leaders who stand for the truth. You see, the author's calling them to stick with Jesus, to bear the reproach he bears. But in very practical terms, it's their sticking with the Jesus' people that shows that they're sticking with Jesus. And it's that that brings them suffering. The two are kind of locked together. And actually, you know that too, I think. Being part of a church that is a public witness to Christ in a world that's hostile, uh, 
Well, that brings reproach, doesn't it? I had a conversation with one of the sisters here in the church a couple of weeks ago, and she was telling me that she spoke to a neighbour who had asked her about which church that she goes to, and at the response of Chalmers, well, there was a sort of wrinkling of the nose, too exclusive about the gospel, too serious about the Bible, so on, as if there's a sort of bad stench in the nostrils. That's just a small example, but that is what it looks like to bear the reproach that he endured. Just a small glimpse of that. Notice it was the public allegiance to her church that revealed her public allegiance to Jesus and which brought that reproach. Now you can, that's a small example, but you can multiply that tenfold for the church in China or in Iran or in North Korea or this Hebrew church here. That's a sacrifice of sorts, isn't it? That's not nice. It's the language of sacrifice in verses 15 and 16. It's not a sacrifice of atonement. It's a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It'd be far easier to remain private. It'd be far easier to keep quiet, far easier to stay away from the people of God, below the radar. No one's going to criticise you for that. But we're being taught that that will not help us endure to the end. Feed on grace. The message taught to you, the full and complete atoning work of the cross of Christ. And joyfully bear the reproach that he bore. And do so right alongside your brothers and sisters who will share it all with you. That's the way we will faithfully endure to the end. Finally, then, we've reached the end of this exhortation. What do we find? Well, we find a prayer. It's fitting, isn't it, that this ends with a prayer, a final prayer for help in time of need. Verse 20 and 21. Let me read it first of all. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the pastor praying for those he keeps watch over. And what does he do in this prayer? Well, he prays, first of all, to remind them of Jesus, doesn't he? He's still saying the same thing. He's still saying, consider Jesus. What does he call Jesus here? Well, he calls him the risen one. He was brought back from the dead. He did die on the cross. He was making atonement for us, the blood of the eternal covenant, but he's not dead anymore. He lives and he reigns and he's seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. But he's also the one who watches over us. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the great shepherd of not just the sheep, but of those who watch over the sheep as well. He watches over all of us. That's who Jesus is. He lifts our eyes to him. But then what does he pray? Well, he prays that God might equip them with all that they need through Jesus, that they might make it to the end. This is a great comfort to us as we hear the exhortation to faithfully endure 
We're called to follow and submit to our leaders, our faithful leaders. We're called to feed on grace and joyfully bear the reproach of Christ. But in the end, it's not down to our own ability or our own determination. It's down to the great shepherd who will keep us. And he will. Let me pray as we close. Just going to pray this prayer for us. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.